Today's podcast, our 13th episode, is brought to you by our podcast partner, the Tawong Specialist Clinic. Hello, I'm Patrick Hurd, Principal Consultant at Community Business Australia, and welcome to Seen and Heard, a podcast about communities and the events and issues that shape the people and organisation within those communities. My special guest today is Dr. Andrew Koo, psychiatrist and expert in post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. And our topic is strategies for leaders dealing with mental health in the workplace. Dr. Andrew Koo attained his fellowship from the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists in 2002, receiving a college medal for his final year dissertation on PTSD. He has, for the past 20 years, overseen the provision of cognitive behaviour therapy for PTSD, mood and anxiety disorders at the Tuong Private Hospital, holding the position of director of this unit since 2004. In 2016, he was nominated for the position of Director of Medical Services and Chair of the Medical Council of TPH, which is recognised as a specialist facilities for PTSD, military and veterans mental health. He holds academic titles with the University of Queensland, within the School of Medicine, and has published and continues to publish academic papers in peer-reviewed psychiatric journals. He advises numerous government departments, military, police and emergency services as an expert consultant and has participated in a number of significant reviews into military and veteran suicide. He is an advisor in the Medical Research Foundation and a member of the Medical Assessments Tribunal. He has chaired and interviewed, presented or participated on panels around Australia and across all media platforms on post-traumatic psychiatric reactions and military veterans and emergency services workers' mental health. So you can see Andrew has packed a lot into his career so far. So let's introduce Andrew. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks for having me, Pat. We've got a lot to canvas today, Andrew, in our conversation, but let's, let's begin by let me declare that Andrew and I are related. So uh, through marriage, my wife Sue is a coup. And, uh, and Andrew's cousin. Um, but the Coos are, are well known in the medical fraternity, uh, Andrew, aren't they, in terms of your family and, and, and uh, that space. So tell us a bit about the Coo family and your connection to the medical profession. So, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of us. Uh, so my father is a, is a GP and uh, my, he married uh, and met my mum as an intern at the Marta Hospital and, <laughs> and they married as so often did in that generation. Correct. Yeah, yeah. And nurses and doctors. Nurses and doctors, that's yeah. right. So mum's a nurse. Uh, my older brother is a doctor and also a psychiatrist and he has married a psychiatrist uh, <laughs> who's also another Dr. Koo and I have a cousin. Yes. Uh, who's also and a psychiatrist. And um, another Dr. Koo. And a do- another Dr. Koo. So there's four Dr. Coos that are psychiatrists, um, but there are also other Dr. Coos. It's sort of a little bit more removed, but it just tends to be that we all moved into medicine. Um, now, you trained initially as a, as a doctor, as you do, as your progression towards becoming a psychiatrist. Did you ever imagine that you'd be a national expert in post-traumatic distress order? <laughs> Did you ever, do you ever imagine that would be where you ended up? No, of course I didn't ever imagine that I'd, I'd be where I am now and even a psychiatrist or even working with with um, survivors of trauma 
so I guess that journey began in in med school. I, I always thought, and and this is strange, you know, I always thought I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon. Now oh, anyone okay. who's, anyone who's a doctor out there is going to laugh because that is at the polar opposite end yeah. to psychiatry. You <laughs> could not find a more opposite type of, of medical career. So, but I think that happened to me because as I was going, as I finished my medicine and I was going into internship and residency at the hospitals where you're the the lowest of the low, yep. doing all the jobs, but learning about everything at the same time and a wonderful time in your life. Yes. I was ruling out rather than ruling in. So what I was left oh, with right. was orthopedics. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Orthopedics and um, and psychiatry. And I think I was lucky enough, I was fortunate enough to be offered a training position in psychiatry quite early. And, and so I jumped at that and thought I would take that. And of course, my brother, who's a few years ahead of me, was already on the psychiatry program. And so I think... We're very similar people, we're we're very close still and we remain very close and I think that probably at a level was influencing me to go that direction knowing how much he was enjoying it. Ah, fantastic. Mm. Tell us about how you got to become this national expert in this space. Like, This is quite a unique specialty that, that you've moved to. So what drew you to that? What happens nowadays in medicine, like everything in life, everything's kind of subspecialising into into everything and everybody I think often tries to find a niche to to make themselves feel more secure so in psychiatry it's exactly the same as it is in surgery you know you can specialize in the stomach or um, knees or or knees or or, or whatever (laughs) in psychiatry there's all the different psychiatric disorders and and there's sub-specialization that occurs there as well what happened with me in my journey was I was lucky enough to get in the last part of my training or my fellowship of becoming a psychiatrist last couple of years, I was lucky enough to get a job in a private hospital, which was really unusual because most of the training occurs in the public Public system. system. Uh, So I took that up. I was the second ever trainee registrar at um, at Tuong Private Hospital, uh, which is where I still work to this day. And I, I got that position and the guy that I was training under was a, a, well-known doctor who was working in PTSD. He was one of the guys that I was training under at Tuong. But he pulled me aside one day and said, look, do you want to do your final year thesis that we all have to had to do at that point? Do you want to do it in post-traumatic stress disorder? And I said, well, I know nothing about that. You know, I've got no idea about it. It's not something we learn about in the public system no. where we really treat low prevalence high severity disorders so people who are psychotic people who are manic people who have significant drug abuse problems or lots of personality issues and have problems with the law and stuff like that so that's all the space we have in in the public system is to treat those really severe conditions so you don't get to treat or even get to see a lot of real psychiatry that's out in the community which is the higher prevalence so more likely to occur lesser severity stuff, mood disorders, anxiety disorders, stuff like that. And PTSD is one of, I guess you could say it's one of those. Now, all those disorders can be severe and really debilitating, but you just don't see them as much in the public system. So I said, look, I know nothing about this. His name was David Crompton. He's a professor now. And I said, look, David, I know nothing about this. And he said, that's okay. You can learn about it. And (laughs) he basically threw me into, he was running programs for Vietnam veterans at that point at Tuong 
at Tuong Hospital. And he said, come in and start doing the programs and basically threw me in, which was intimidating, but something that I started to really enjoy. I wrote my thesis in that and I won a um, Australian New Zealand yeah, medal uh, from the college yeah, yeah. for that. And that kind of basically then locked me into doing that. I mean, <laughs> while I wrote that thesis, I became very interested in everything uh, around the disorder and, and it just sort of went from there. Fantastic. Mm. I recall listening to a presentation from, well, now Sir Peter Crossgrove some mm. 15 years ago where he openly talked about, as a leader, how little he knew. Now, this is a military leader. Mm. He knew about PTSD when he was the commander of the International Task Force and his team, or you remember that famous commission that he had in the 1990s, but also, more importantly, the debilitating impact it had on the men and women that he led for many years after. So can you explain that trauma condition and the impacts it has potentially on, on, on people's mental health? So uh, the first thing I'd say is that psychiatry has learned about the human condition very much through our understanding of trauma through history. Yep. Okay, starting with famous names like, like Freud and yep. Jung, yep. and everyone, they studied people who were traumatised, not necessarily in the military, but, pe- but, but also from military trauma, but people who'd been traumatised through their life so we could learn about the human psyche. Yep. Leading on from that, we know a lot of our contemporary understanding of this disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, through our access to large cohorts of people who've been traumatised through the years. And the way that we have come across those large cohorts of people have been during the large wars through history. So really our understanding of PTSD has mirrored our, our, our access to these people. So with really important times being, believe it or not, the going back to probably our understanding, going back to the American Civil War, and another war that was occurring on the other side of the world at that time called the Crimean War. Yep. So from there, we learnt a lot. And then through World War One, World War Two, with the most important war in terms of our understanding of PTSD being Vietnam. Yeah. So the problem was that PTSD, believe it or not, wasn't accepted as really as a psychiatric condition in terms of our psychiatric diagnostic textbooks really until 1980. Wow. So I often say to my patients, uh, like in the groups, I'll say, how long's PTSD been around? And it's a trick question because PTSD's re- only been around, called that, since 1980. But actually, it's been around as long as humans have been on Earth and had right. the capacity to be... Traumatised. Traumatised, exactly, yeah. which is just being on Earth. Yeah. So... If we look at, in terms of historical writings and proof, PTSD is one of the oldest medical diagnoses, yeah. let alone psychiatric diagnoses, because any, as long as we can go back to where humans have been recording history, so you know, ancient Sumerians and Hittites chipping into tablets, yep. you can go back to those, because when you think about it, what people thought was important to write down were things that affected a lot of people at one time. Correct. Wars, Wars, conflicts, yep. and natural disasters. Yeah. These are two of the biggest causes of PTSD. Yeah. So you can go back to those tablets and you can see people writing about how people were affected yep. by these kind of cataclysmic kind of situations in their world. Yep. 
and they will talk about people isolating themselves off, not sleeping, being angry, having nightmares, using whatever substance was usable in that part of the world at that time. time. Mm. Yeah. So unfortunately, what happened is after each of these major conflicts that we were talking about before, we'd learn a lot about PTSD, but then we'd forget it in the meantime Mm. until the next one had come along, until that is after Vietnam, or a very powerful Vietnam lobby in America, lobbied the American government, and got it recognised as a disorder. Mm. It's only from there that we've been able to compound our knowledge and really study groups of people with this disorder properly. And so we've caught up a lot there, but we, we, we kind of fell quite behind a lot of other disorders that have been recognised for a long time and always been in psychiatric textbooks. Great contextual history background, but what so is it? PTSD now, if we look at those diagnostic textbooks that I was talking to you about, it has five symptom sets. So practically the only disorder in psychiatric textbooks that has its cause in the, in the symptom set. Yep. Now, everyone would understand out there that you can't take a blood test or do a brain scan or something like that or an MRI and tell what psychiatric illness yep. someone has because we're talking about the mind, yes. not the brain. Although nowadays we're finding a lot more biological correlates to yep. psychiatric yep. disorder. But basically it's, you've got to be traumatised But the trauma has to be to a certain level. So therefore, that's the most controversial part of the diagnosis because what's trauma to one may not be trauma to somebody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have that trauma. We can talk about that more if that's interesting. But basically, it's that that PTSD-level trauma. Then, as a result of that trauma, you get what we call re-experiencing or intrusion symptoms. And they are what we call intrusive memories. You can't stop the memories of that coming back into yep. your head. Nightmares and flashbacks. Yep. Okay, And all of those get worse with reminders in the environment. Yep. And as such, yeah. yeah, triggers, yep. exactly, or we call them cues. And as such, people will avoid those cues or triggers in the environment so that they don't get the, the re-experiencing or intrusion symptoms. Gotcha. So they have avoidance, avoidance of social situations, avoidance yep. of triggers, avoidance of emotion which is really damaging. Then they get features that are sort of depressive, uh, so negative thoughts about themselves and about the world and negative feelings. And then they get, very importantly, anxiety symptoms, physical anxiety symptoms, as like fight and flight symptoms, if people know what those are, and also um, psychological anxiety symptoms like poor sleep, irritability, impatience, intolerance, anger, hypervigilance, which is uh, being very alert, jumpy, that kind of thing. You also mentioned, um, and and I was doing some background reading, that a lot of the work you do is in group-based therapy. So you're bringing people together that have experienced trauma similarly. So that's the work in the military, I'm I'm guessing. Is that right? So this this is the difficulty with, at a level with group-based treatment for PTSD, because it is an individual experience yeah. or a subjective experience. But you, I believe you can get some really good work and some really good outcomes from putting together people with what we call homogeneous trauma, which means all their trauma is relatively similar. So putting together groups of military trauma, people who've been traumatised in the military, right. uh, putting together people, for example, who have had emergency services work trauma, so mm. putting police together, but you can put in with them maybe ambos and fireys as yeah. well. Yeah, who see some pretty horrendous... Oh, they see terrible... And in yeah. many ways, particularly policing trauma is probably the worst of all yeah. of them. Yeah, so we do group treatments, but we separate out our military 
and our non-military, Military. if you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what are the parallels, you know, in, in trauma? Obviously, there's different trauma that you'd see from a military perspective. It's a really violent environment at times, isn't it, in terms of that? But I'm sure emergency services would see some horrendous issues which would bring that trauma on. So are there parallels here? And what I'm trying to get to is eventually I want to talk about then what does that mean in a, in a, in a regular workplace, okay. you know, in terms of some of the, uh, our leaders that work in those spaces as well. So let's talk about that first. Okay, so trauma is trauma. If trauma meets the, the criteria or the cutoff for trauma in PTSD, yeah. then you can get PTSD. And it's, it's interesting because anyone who's got PTSD right. presents with the same set of symptoms because that's how you diagnose them for a start. Correct. So if someone's traumatised from a car accident, a bad car accident, they can present very similar to someone with, with military trauma. They'll have the same re-experiencing, they'll have the same avoidance, they'll have the same depressive and anxiety-type features uh, with, with nuanced difference. But... PTSD is PTSD, and and as long as they meet the trauma cutoff, they can they 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 very much can present in a very similar way, or what we call phenotypic way. Right, and as you say, trauma comes in many forms, and in the last eighteen months. Lifeline reported a twenty percent increase in the number of calls they received from people in need. Um, uh, the federal government, in its you know, the previous federal government increased its allocation of funding to $2.3 billion of additional support for mental health funding. So, you know, it, it seems like this is a growing space in terms of people dealing with trauma and what to do about that. What are the sort of more typical types of trauma examples you're seeing? And, and more importantly, what are the impacts it's having on people's quality of life? And they're having to deal with these natural events, flood, fire, um, pandemics, etc. in your space? So again, a, a great question and uh, lots to say about that. But basically, what the latest Australian data would show is that 60 to 70% of the Australian population would have met criteria for a post-traumatic stress disorder level trauma. So uh, that is massive right? Wow. 60 to 70%. And that includes in the population children as well. So we're talking probably a, a higher rate of adults because yeah. thank God a lot of children haven't yet. Uh, so it, that's a high number, yeah. right? Now, that doesn't mean that 60 to 70% of the uh, population have PTSD. That's a very different thing because there are multiple outcomes of trauma. Like if, if an individual is, is exposed to what we call a, po a potentially traumatic event, the biggest outcome of that from a psychological point of view isn't PTSD. No. In fact, PTSD is quite down the list. Yep. The, the main outcome from that is that people will be for a while psychologically distressed, but they will resolve and process that themselves in the way that, that they do process things. And about 80% the data would show, will go on and not have any lasting problems. Yep. Okay. So self-resolved. That's right. Yep. However, part of that 80% might get other psychiatric illnesses as opposed, you know, from the trauma. And it's really important that, that people understand that PTSD has this sexy name, post-traumatic stress disorder, but it's not the, the, pro, the most likely outcome from trauma, from a, even from a mental health point of view. So you're mm. more likely to get depressed after trauma. 
yes. than you are to get PTSD. You're more likely to get another type of anxiety disorder, like a generalised anxiety or a panic disorder or a social phobia or something like that following trauma than you are to get PTSD. Mm. You're more likely to get a drug and alcohol problem mm. than you are to get PTSD. The interesting thing is that 20% of people will go on and get PTSD after following a significant trauma. Okay, oh. and there's, it's really interesting because there's a lot of things that, because there's a lot of research that has gone into what predicts which way you will go. Yes. Will I go on and resolve it myself and, and manage it? Yep. Or will I go on and have this long-lasting kind of chronic problem, psychiatric problem with, with all the symptoms that I outlined before? So th- that's something that's important for everyone to understand, that not everyone gets trauma just because uh, a post-traumatic stress disorder just because they've been traumatised. As you correctly say, trauma comes in, in a broad range of spaces and it seems to be becoming more prevalent in, uh, in our society. Mm. Youth suicide, for example, is, is increasing, unfortunately, quite dramatically. Um, th- there's a lot of you know, s- social challenges that lead to a whole range of trauma ec- you know, experiences. People you know, becoming homeless is quite a traumatic experience and Very traumatic. has significant impact on their quality of life and, and, and a lot of the, our clients work in those spaces supporting those those individuals going through a very traumatic period of their life so so you're right it comes in a range of a range of ways and events that can cause and trigger um, this significant mental health challenge for individuals and the other thing just to pick up from your original question pat is it's it's very topical now because like when you were mentioning before about all the things that have happened recently that tend to have fed an yeah. increase in sort of population level psychological angst <laughs> that's happened yeah. recently. Yeah. Um, very much with with the whole COVID pandemic yeah. that has led to changes in how in in social fabric almost mm. Um, mm. with uh, with changes in um, in occupation and employment, changes in financial status, changes in how we work day to day, like people being stuck at home and people not being able to socialise as much. All these kind of pressures have led to a significant increase in the need for psychological services, like you mentioned the lifeline statistic. Personally, from my point of view, both from working in my private rooms as a private um, psychiatrist, but also as being director of the hospital where I work, uh, there has been a significant increase in the need for psychological services such that people can't even access a psychiatrist now or a psychologist, mind you, mm. for months. Yes. Like, and this is when they need it the most. At that particular point. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. So there, there has been a huge increase in demand for mental health services lately off the back of the, the, the COVID pandemic and all the social occupational domestic kind of stressors that that has precipitated. One of the things I want to ask you as we ask all our guests is around uh, around leadership and your, your views on leadership. And, you know, you've been successful in securing quite notable leadership roles, not only in your in your workplace in terms of the, the hospital you work in and the, the clinic you run, but, but also uh, in a whole range of you know, quite notable committees that you're working with government agencies on. So, um, you know, what, what do you put that down to in terms of, you know, how, how this has evolved for you? Is it just, it just happened or have you really planned that out? Okay, so look, I never set out to be a leader. I 
definitely ha- had, along my journey, had a lot of trepidation about being in leadership positions okay. um, for a start. But so again, this is something that, that I've fallen into. Um, well, you're, you're chairing committees now as yeah. well. Like, you know, these are prominent committees dealing with some significant issues. So people are looking to you for guidance, advice, etc. In, in these roles. That mostly happened, believe it or not, because people started to understand or become aware that I was doing a lot of work with PTSD and so people started to refer more to me. Because in my my capacity to see patients was finite and I end up now having to, uh, and, and for the last 15 years, having to, to unfortunately tell, and I feel terrible about this even to this day, with each individual person, but I can't see people anymore. Yeah. I can't take them on to see them in my private practice because I'm just too busy, I'm too full, yeah. you know, there's no space. And that, I struggled with that personally, like I'm, you know, uh, with, with a whole kind of medical ethics thing, you know, it's like yeah. you've got to help people, yeah. you know, you can't, you're supposed to do as much as you can to help it, as many people as you can. Yeah. And so a way for me to to assuage my own feelings of guilt around that, um, what I tried to do was um, to go out and find positions where I could affect a greater amount of people without an ability to actually see them in my rooms. So I started to accept invitations to join committees um, and to start to instead of affect this individual sitting in front of me, to try and start to affect policy that's going to affect more More people people. by doing things with the Department of Veterans Affairs, for example, by doing things with the the military, the Australian Defence Force, by doing things with policing forces. um, And and just just so I could help more people. And that's how it evolved from there, really. That was... um, In terms of... My position at the hospital, I think that just evolved over time um, in that I'd been there for, for a long time. People became familiar with me. People felt that I could do the job. And so I was approached to, to take on clinical director positions and then to eventually take on the director of the hospital position. And, um, and, and that's how that evolved too. My reticence with leadership is, and this is a personal thing, this is a dis- personal disclosure thing, I, I like to be liked. <laughs> and um, and that's my issue. And, you know, we have to do a lot of self-reflection in, in my training. And <laughs> that. Sure. And one of my issues is that I'm a I'm a peacemaker. I'm a, a pacifier, and I kind of like to be liked. And, <laughs> and I've always known that about myself, really. Sure. And so I knew in leadership positions you're going to make hard decisions. Correct. Okay. And you'll never please everybody. That's human nature again. So I that was my struggle with with not wanting to take on leadership positions was yes. that like I'm not this isn't going to work well with my personality yep. kind of thing but in the end uh, like everything there are there are qualities that you can bring to any position no matter what level you're at correct which can be really levered and and to make the position better yep. and um, so being in the position I was uh, on committees for example and and having to argue certain points and sort of just stick my ground was was important for me in terms of development as a as a leader and particularly yep. as an opinion maker. Correct. Um, and in the hospital, I can't be that person because I've got to be able to talk to people when they're probably when they could be working better. 
yeah. with others or working better in the way they do the technical parts of their job. Yeah. So I have to be able to talk to them, but I just bring my own way of doing that, which is much more collaborative rather than directive. It's, it's interesting you say that because um, part of the leadership journey is getting to know yourself. And, and part of the struggle that I observe working with many leaders in my role is, is they often struggling to find themselves and what their strengths are, what they're comfortable with, what their style is. I know it's an overused term, but you know you've really described your style. Your style is based around your personality mm. and what are the, what are the characteristics of your personality. And rather than fighting against that, you've actually used that uh, as as your leadership approach. And um, yeah, that comes with with challenges for you but all but also brings a lot of benefits to the people that you work with i would struggle with not being authentic to myself so i could change my my personality style to make myself a better leader but it's not authentic and and i and i would struggle to maintain that facade particularly everyone struggles to manage this going back into psychiatry people will struggle to maintain that facade under stress in fact it's it's hard to you will revert to your natural to to your natural style yeah the uh, and the other thing I'd, I'd say about that is that and, and I'm smiling because I love what you said about you know leadership is about learning about yourself. Yeah, I can tell you, Pat. Uh, my feeling is after working in psychiatry for 25 years, life is a journey yes. of learning about yourself. Yeah. and I think the more you learn about yourself, the more you know yourself, the happier you will be because the more you're able to modify your response to what the world is throwing at you. Yeah. So life is a journey to get to know yourself, and I, I often tell my patients that. And, and um, so working on yourself is the most powerful thing you can do, okay? Because this is stuff, as everybody knows, that you can change. And now a quick word about our podcast partner, the Tawong Specialist Centre. Established in 2010, the Tawong Specialist Clinic is a dedicated private outpatients mental health service located in Tawong, Brisbane. They provide facilities for 30 private psychiatrists, as well as up to four training registrars, clinical research projects, and are a depression treatment clinic for TMS Australia. To see and treat a wide range of mental health conditions and have been invited to work at this clinic because of their excellence in clinical skills, professionalism, and dedication to their patients. The Tuong Specialist Clinic is proud to be a centre of excellence in Queensland's mental health care. So let's talk about the, the sort of more broader workplaces because obviously that's where our listeners uh, are, are working. We're seeing a, a lot of heightened uh, emphasis around people's well-being. I know that's a common term. In fact, in our firm, we've we've just uh, connected and establishing a, a well-being specialty, so working in workplaces. So what are the trends that you're seeing in terms of this space and also the impacts it's having on workers and their productivity and their engagement with their people they're supporting? So we know, and it's been established and now accepted, about the significant and pervasive effect on workplace productivity of mental health. Yeah. Uh, mental health is causing huge amounts of loss of productivity, loss of efficiency. Yeah. Okay, and this is due to absenteeism, but more importantly, presenteeism, if you've heard of that term. Yeah. Okay, where what's that? The presenteeism is where people are at work, but they really yeah, shouldn't be. be yeah. And they're taking up a chair and 
they're there because they think they should be, but their, use, their, their usefulness and efficiency and productivity is way down. It would definitely be better if they actually weren't there and someone else was in their job working efficiently, well, if you know what I mean. Funny you say that. I think anyone could think back to their own working career and know at a point in time that's been them. Oh, totally. Everybody could yeah. say that at some point. And it's been measured. So yeah. this, these kind of things have been measured. And presenteeism is a huge problem um, from mental health problems causing presenteeism is a way bigger effect on, on productivity numbers and metrics that and have been measured than absenteeism. Oh. But, but mental health causes lots of both, right? So we know that that problem is there. Uh, if we move then from there to this, uh, this whole discussion around mental health well-being, and, there's, and, and, and um, I like being asked this question because this is something that's really becoming big yes. okay within within my or uh in the last 10 years but sort of should be a lot bigger and should have been a lot bigger earlier Correct. and what i mean by that is it's because of the medical model so what the medical model is that we diagnose by symptoms yes. right so what we are looking for is we are looking for deficits yeah, a in fault. people we're looking for a fault and yeah. that's that's our lens that we look for. We look for a fault. Now, you're not often going to find a fault till quite a way down the track. Yeah. Okay. But if we focused more on buffering people up rather than waiting for the problem and then reacting to it, yeah. okay, which unfortunately our diagnostic models depend on, yep. then we'd be a lot better off because it's kind of much more a primary prevention Correct. type of approach than it is a reactive secondary tertiary prevention type approach that we've just been trained and that's how we think okay so we need to to look much more at increasing positives or finding a lack of of positives rather than looking for negatives mm. so so they're almost inverting your thinking around um, the workplace environment in many respects, isn't it? So from a mental health point of view, it's all about what we call positive mental health or yeah. mental health well-being, yeah. like you're saying, which, which is instead making sure people's baseline mental health is good, which actually then buffers them against getting any problems in the future. Yeah. So these kind of... Th- and I make all my patients do this. In, in all the patients that I see, I make them all do it because... The power of some of these things has been shown in, in building evidence bases to be more powerful than any of the drugs we've got. It's actually better than the treatments we've got. And I'm talking positive mental health, positive well-being strategies are things like regular exercise. Yep. Regular exercise is, is powerful against depression and anxiety type disorders. I agree, absolutely. But, but also, and you know, people know that anecdotally in their own lives it's like if i if i go and do regular exercise i just feel better about myself yeah every my whole frame or the whole lens that i look at the world through changes i want to eat better yeah i want to go out more yeah you know i don't want i don't want to be sitting at home on my backside you know i'd much rather be out doing things with other people doing things yeah. and it's just so positive in so many ways for people so regular exercise and the studies would say three times a week half an hour where you're getting a reasonable cardiovascular effort. So, in other words, you're sweating. Yeah, heart rate. Okay. Yeah, so that, that's great. Sleeping well, huge. You know, everyone should prioritise their sleep. Sleep is, is, is vital for so much in mental health as well as physical health. Yep. 
So sleep, exercise, diet. Diet is not quite the same level of power of evidence that we've got in terms of affecting mental health, but I'm sure it'll build over time as we learn more about it. But a good diet, really important. And, you know, when are we most likely to have a good diet? When we're exercising. Yeah. I mean, it's so these all fit together. Uh, Socialising and social connectedness, really important, you know, that people are connected with their world and with people around them. We are social beings. We are designed that way to be social beings and we need social contact and the positive validation we get from that. From having people around us with like-minded and who tell us, who 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 bring us up and and tell us the things that we're doing that make their lives better. Yep. This is so important. Yep. Very importantly, and this comes to work, is positive, meaningful, purposeful activity. Everybody needs that in their life, and this is why we did a study on our veterans that were not working. So all veterans, what a lot of them will try and do is get compensation for their, for their illnesses, of course. Sure. Okay. And I'm sure this goes across into civilians who've got compensation as well. So if we looked at the negative effects via the lens of suicide, okay? So we were looking at people who had suicidal thoughts yes. in veterans that you were just as likely if you were a veteran to have suicidal thoughts if you were not working or if you were had already got all your compensation that they're all looking for and were still not working. Yep. So the compensation added nothing. nothing. No. So the, 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 the message to take from that is it's meaningful, purposeful activity that's important. Yep. It's not money no. or it's not yes. finances. Yes. So people need a reason to get out of bed in the morning. Yep. And that is just crucial. Yep. So these are the sort of five pillars that I get everybody, and obviously, you know, managing alcohol and drugs and stuff like that in terms of positive mental health is vital. Sure. But these kind of things, these positive mental health things are powerful and they are just as powerful as the contemporary treatments that we offer people for many of the mood and anxiety disorders that are out in the world and many of the things that cause psychological distress. There are certain psychiatric illnesses everybody needs to be aware that need medication because yeah. they're brain-based psychological disorders. But for most of the psychological distress out there, if we all just really focused on these well-being stuff that you yeah. were talking about, that employers and leaders should be putting into all aspects of our lives. So politicians should be telling us all, or you know, we should be getting these health messages from health departments that everybody should be doing these things. It should be just slammed into us. Employers in, in the sort of private industry should be making sure all their, all their workers do this and all their staff do this. Because if their staff do this, they're going to maximise their efficiency and productivity. Yeah. It's just... It's a sound investment. It's, it's a, <laughs> it is an investment, but people, people don't see it that way. People see it as, oh, no. I've got to spend on this. You know, but I'll, you'll get it back and then some. You're right, because we're dealing with the fault. And by the time it's a fault, it becomes a much bigger issue. And, and a much more expensive, expensive issue, issue yeah. to resolve. Yeah. So if we can just flip that and say, if we can invest at this end, where we're investing in the, the broader well-being under those sort of five examples you gave, mm. which are... Uh, which is know, common sense, Yeah, right? I was going to say, it, 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 that's... That's not uh, that's not huge in many respects, is it? So, um, look, um, I could talk all day, Andrew, in terms of this is fascinating work, but and because it, it impacts so much on everyone's life, um, you know, and I think you've given some great tips for 
the workplace and leaders in terms of how they can have a, a safe and healthy environment for their, for their workers. But I suppose to finish um, our conversation, what's your, given that this has become much more prevalent in our society in, in recent times, as we said with some of these major triggers of major uh, events like pandemics and floods and fires and the like, what do you see is you'd like to see the vision for Australia in the future in terms of, um, you know, you mentioned this a little bit previously about what governments should do, but what should governments, community, the, the whole sort of business sectors be working towards to make sure we've got a better well-being approach to our, our lives in the future? So it's, I feel that a lot of it is about public policy and education. So education in terms of about mental health disorders, uh, what we call, we refer to it as, as uh, mental health literacy. So in other words, yeah. getting everyone to understand a bit more about mental health, getting everybody to understand that no one is protected from, from psychological distress, getting everyone to understand it's not an innate weakness. Yeah. It's the only way we can address stigma, which is still the major hurdle yep. for a lot of mental health and mental health policy and people working positively towards mental health. A lot of it is still about the stigma that still exists and that's a stigma that exists at multiple levels. So Agreed. in the individual, in in populations, culturally, in organisations, there's a lot of organisational stigma, say, in the, in the uh, armed forces, for yes. example, or in the police, yes. you know. So it's about education, on, on mental health and getting people to understand more about it. It's about reducing stigma. And then it's about really going hard, I think, with public policy around how do I... We're, we've got really good at teaching people about cardiovascular fitness, yeah. you know, and about how to decrease heart attacks, which are, you know, the biggest cause of death, how to reduce smoking and that and do things that are going to decrease cancer. So there's a, been a lot about mm. that because it's understandable because it's a physical condition and we can touch it and see it, mm. okay? But with mental health, it's this kind of mysterious thing and it's mm. this kind of thing that we we don't talk about and we hide away from mm. and mm. and we've got to get that right in front of people because it's more prevalent than Correct. those other things and it's causing there is mental health disorders that are causing incredible amounts of disease burden or yes. morbidity and and mortality so yeah. a lot of them cause have lethal endings yes. so what we need to do is just get that that message out there that these things we can do for physical health, and, and you know, maybe the best way to do that is to mix them together, together yeah. and say that the, it's broader good for health. both. Yeah, that's right. For broader health, these are the things you need to do. You know, you need to sleep well. You need to exercise. You need to not drink and smoke. You need to have social connectedness. You need to, yep. you know, have purposeful. meaningful, purposeful Purpose. activity yeah. in your life, and all this kind of stuff, and and just roll it out and get it happening. And my God, that that would be a great place to be. And I would have a lot less work. <laughs> Which, is, which would be a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> Andrew, thank you so much for your valuable time. Really appreciate our chats. Um, thanks again. No worries. Thanks for having me. And thanks to our podcast partner, Tawong Specialist Centre, for making this interview possible. Thanks also to Derek Tan and his team at Generator, our marketing communications consultants, for producing this podcast. And thank you for tuning in today. Join us again soon when we talk to another industry leader about issues that shape our communities. Until next time, I'm Patrick Hurd and this is Seen and Heard.